1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. I want you to imagine you're at an orchestra concert. And the music begins, the conductor is conducting this orchestra, all the different musical instruments and sections, and it's all coming together in this beautiful sound, this beautiful music that is lifting your heart, bringing joy. And then right in the middle of the orchestra concert, the conductor walks off stage. And all the musicians continue playing, but they start playing what they think would be best, and they start playing what they think they would like, and now you have all these instruments playing on their own accord, and suddenly this beautiful music turns into a, just a screeching noise. That's a picture of what many have called our current culture, which is an anti-authority culture. We live in a world that has become so skeptical of authority that they've absolutely dismissed it, not trusting authority, not knowing what to trust, to where we're at a point the only trustworthy person is the individual. And so everyone is living out what they think is right in their own eyes. And I think you can see in our world, in our culture, you can see a little bit of the screeching noise of what's happening. God has intended for his world to be operating in the boundaries of authority and leadership. Now, sadly, it's the failure of leadership that has in some ways contributed to where we're at in this culture that is anti-authority. But you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Leadership's important. Authority is important. That's the way that God has designed his world and certainly his church to operate. And so Paul is instructing Timothy here on the importance of leadership, on the importance of authority. Leadership is important, but what is important 
when it comes to leadership. What is important when it comes to leadership? First, the importance of respect. Remember where we've been. So first part of chapter five, Paul lays out details on how widows should be ministered to. These widows that were in need in this church at Ephesus, how the care was to be delivered to them. Now he steps into those who will actually be delivering the pastoral care to these widows, those in the church who are delivering the care, and specifically elders, but a specific category of elders. Verse 17, let those or let the elders who rule well or lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, let me just pause here. <laughs> this was a lot easier to preach an hour ago at the Beaches plant, where I could advocate for their pastor, Kevin. So I'm just going to acknowledge the awkwardness of this. But I'm going to teach what it means, okay? Especially those laboring in preaching and teaching. This is identifying a type of elder that is doing the pastoral work in a church. Today, this would be uh, the ordained pastor in a church or a pastoral staff of a church. Uh, this is, in our tradition, what distinguishes between a ruling elder, which you just saw Ed Morales come up and pray. He's a ruling elder. And a teaching elder, which would be myself, Pastor Matt, Pastor Kevin at the beach. We are teaching elders that have been ordained by our regional oversight body called the North Florida Presbytery. And so it's to these pastor elders that Paul instructs Timothy that are worthy of double honor. Now, the word honor, what does that mean? Honor uh, can mean an honorarium, a salary, or a stipend. Verse 18 actually gives support towards this understanding of honor. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Two quotes there. The first quote is by Moses in Deuteronomy 25. The second is by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. In Deuteronomy 25, there's this imagery laid out of uh, an ox that is treading out uh, grain on the threshing floor. And the context of Deuteronomy 25 indicates that this is most likely the situation where someone has rented an ox to thresh their grain. Now, you all know the difference between when you rent something and when you own something, right? A lot more care goes into when you own something, but when you rent something, not so much care goes into it. So the situation in Deuteronomy 25 is someone has rented an ox to thresh their grain, but they keep it muzzled, right? So the ox can't eat while it's working hard. But to the person that's rented the ox, as long as the grain gets threshed, it doesn't matter what, this, what shape this ox is in by the time it's done. If it hasn't eaten, it's muzzled, who cares, right? Because they got their grain. It's that context that Paul seems to be writing here to say to Timothy, pastor elders are not to be taken for granted or to be taken advantage of, that they should be cared for, compensated for their, their gospel labors. Now, if that's honor, what does double honor mean? Well, it actually means double pay. I'm just kidding. It's not double pay. What does double honor mean? 
Well, there's two ways to understand this. It could be referring to a a bivocational pastor elder. So uh, a pastor who works a job and gets paid for that job, and then also is pastoring a church where they receive honor from the church. That could be double honor. The other possibility is that it means, uh, double honor means respect and financial provision. So respect and support. And this certainly would fit well in this church in Ephesus. We've seen the issues going on in this church. Most recently, the mishandling of widows. And so these pastor elders are called to come into very difficult situations, make hard decisions with limited resources to bring relief to the widows. And what Paul's telling Timothy is, make sure they're doing hard work, they're making hard decisions, they've got limited resources, make sure they're being honored, respected, and supported. The issue of respect, though, as we see, extends beyond pastor elders. Paul picks up in the beginning of chapter six in those first two verses talking about slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. Verse one, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, right? of all respect, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, let me just briefly address concerns that come out of these two verses that speak about slavery and other parts of the New Testament that speak about slavery. Because the concern is, when you read these passages, some arrive at the conclusion, I guess the Bible endorses slavery. And that's not the case. Let me give you a couple of background thoughts here. Number one, slavery was very common in the Roman Empire. It was estimated at this time in the first century that there were 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. The large cities like Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus, it was estimated that up to one-third of the population in these cities were slaves. Uh, Some of the people in the Ephesian church owned slaves. Uh, Philemon, who was an elder in the Colossian church, there's a letter in the New Testament written to Philemon, was a slave owner. So it was very common. Number two, slavery in the Roman Empire was very different than the African-American slave trade that we know of in our country in the 19th century. The African-American slave trade was tragically racist. Not so in the Roman Empire. Slaves weren't, uh, by their identity as a slave, tied to a certain social class. In fact, slaves were generally accorded the social status of their masters. Also, slaves owned their own property, were able to invest and save to purchase themselves out of slavery. Now, all that to say, it was still wrong. It was still wrong. So you say, why didn't Paul and the New Testament writers more directly confront slavery? couple thoughts here. One, there were already positive reforms happening in the first century in the Roman Empire. Slaves uh, under Roman law were almost all eventually set free. Number two, the, the first century church was more concerned with spiritual reform than social reform. Doesn't mean they weren't concerned with social reform, but they were concerned more about spiritual reform, which is why you'll see Paul talk about how slaves should treat their masters. 
and how masters should, should treat their slaves. So they were, they were concerned about spiritual reform, the reform of the heart. Not to mention, Paul didn't have the authority to overthrow slavery in the Roman Empire. He didn't have that authority. Now, we do see when Paul wrote his letter to Philemon in the New Testament, who was an elder in the Colossian church and a slave owner, he encouraged Philemon to free his slave. And then third, I would say when the gospel is faithfully preached and taught, that would eventually bring the demise of slavery, which it did. Now, that being said, Paul addresses how slaves should treat their masters. Verse one is an unbelieving master. Verse two is a believing master. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. The equivalent today would be the relationship between a boss and employee. And even beyond that, anyone that's in authority over you, the exhortation here is to honor and respect those who have been placed in authority over you. Philip Towner, he's a British scholar. He became a Christian. He came to Christ while serving the military in England. And this is what he recalls in his early days of being in the military after he and several others came to Christ. Listen to what he says. There were several of us who had just set out on the Christian adventure. In our enthusiasm to serve Christ, we somehow concluded that we didn't need to concern ourselves with mundane rules about shine boots and clean pressed uniforms. Our superiors quickly made the connection between our new faith and our sloppy appearance. And in that small corner of the world, Christianity was in danger of being linked with insubordination. Respect and honor is important. Pastor Kent Hughes once had an employer tell them, tell him that he had become very skeptical of Christians because he had two theological students that were working for him that would spend a lot of their time standing around during work hours talking about God. This employer said it really came to a, a, a critical point when he watched one of these students go into the bathroom for 20 minutes. And when he came out, he overheard him whisper to his fellow student, I just had the most wonderful time. I just read three chapters in the Gospel of John. And Kent Hughes said this with a little bit of humor, three chapters of John in the John on the boss's time, neither pleases God nor man. Honor and respect. I had a kid, he was in elementary school a little while back, say a very disparaging, disrespectful statement about the President of the United States. It was addressed, but it was very clear he didn't really know what he was saying. He had picked it up from his friends at school. Now, where had his friends at school heard this? Respect starts in the home. Respect is modeled out by parents. The reality is you will never, ever fully agree with a leader in what they do and how they handle a situation, whether it's in a church, whether it's in the government, whether it's in the marketplace. That is reality. And you're entitled to an opinion on how things are handled. 
You're entitled to assess and maybe see that this wasn't handled well, but there's never, ever an excuse for disrespect. God calls his people to honor and respect authority that has been placed over them. Why? Into verse one, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Disrespect from those who profess Jesus Christ undermines the gospel message. Disrespect from those who profess Jesus Christ undermines the gospel message. What is important when it comes to leadership? First, respect. But second, accountability. Accountability. Verses 19 to 21 are probably Paul's response on how to handle leaders, elders, pastor, elders that have been criticized, potentially by how they're handling the ministry to widows, maybe something else in the church. In other words, how do you handle a leader being critiqued? And what Paul says here in verses 19 to 21 is he paints two sides of the spectrum. He says, on one side, you handle it with caution. Verse verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses, that's very common throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New. Why multiple witnesses? Because a pastor elder at the center of his profession is his character. And pastor elders have a very public position to where they're vulnerable to slander and gossip. And the human proclivity to believe the worst about people exists everywhere, even in the church. And so Paul says to Timothy, be cautious when there's a critique. You don't just believe what one person says. There needs to be some witnesses, right, to be cautious about that. But that's one side of the spectrum. On the other hand, Paul is urging for courage. He's urging for courage because sometimes pastors, leaders sin. They're not perfect. They mess up. Sometimes the critique and charge is warranted. So Paul addresses courage in verses 20 to 21. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Too often, the sin of leaders is overlooked. And so a leader will will move on to a new place and do the same thing, and it's overlooked there, and then they move on to a new place, and they leave this trail of destruction and this trail of damage because no one had the courage to step up and confront the wrongdoing or to confront the sin. Paul's telling Timothy, have courage to confront. Have courage to confront. It doesn't matter who it is. Sin is sin. And where does the courage come from? The presence of God, Christ Jesus, the elect angels, the host of heaven. That's where the courage comes from to confront. But there's another word here on this side of the spectrum. It's courage, but also consistency. Paul says, don't don't rebuke from a place of partiality 
or a place of prejudging. In other words, don't rebuke having already had made your mind up or showing favoritism. In fact, in the Roman Empire, uh, the wealthy and the rich were favored under Roman law. Paul says to Timothy, there's no favoritism in your leading, Timothy. No favoritism, right? Justice, justice is to be blind. There shouldn't be any old boys system, old boys network where leaders get to do what they want to do and not held accountable. That can't happen, especially in the church. That can't happen. And apparently that was happening in the church at Ephesus. Do you remember several years ago when, when Boeing 737 MAX airplanes, there were two crashes, one in Indonesia, one in Ethiopia, over 300 people died and they were, it was a brand new airplane, and so they launched a congressional investigation to find out what went wrong with this new aircraft. They pulled it, pulled it out of the air, and it was interesting when they did this investigation what they found, because they found culpability with Boeing, they found culpability with the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, but in finding culpability with Boeing, what was interesting is what they diagnosed and what they criticized with Boeing was what they called a culture of concealment amongst management, amongst leadership. This is what they said. The crashes were the horrific culmination of a series of faulty technical assumptions by Boeing's engineers, and here it is, a lack of transparency on the part of Boeing's management and Boeing's leadership. A culture of concealment is the opposite of a culture of accountability and transparency. And sadly, the culture of concealment plagues the church, plagues the government, plagues the marketplace. It plagues every institution that we have just about. What produces a culture of concealment? It's so rampant. What produces it? Fear and control, right? Fear of the consequences of being transparent. You know what that's like. If I'm transparent, what's going to happen? I don't like what's going to happen. There's no way I'm going to be transparent, right? That fear produces a culture of concealment, but control does as well. And control says, I'm going to control this situation so that it doesn't get to this negative consequence, right? So you have fear and control that produces this culture of concealment, then what empowers transparency? If that's what produces culture of concealment, what empowers transparency? Well, what's important about leadership? The importance of respect, the importance of accountability or transparency. Third, the importance of trust. Right? The importance of trust. Paul's laid out the respect needed for leadership. He's laid out the accountability of leadership. And now he's going to get to how do you select leaders? How do you assess leaders? Verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Laying on of hands was shorthand for commissioning new leaders. Paul says, be careful when you're commissioning new leaders. Don't do it too quickly. 
Don't put somebody in leadership that's not qualified or not ready, because if you do, you'll take part in the sins of others. Now, what does that mean? I think there's two ways to understand it. Taking part in the sins of others could mean taking part in the sins of these false teachers in the Ephesian church who may have been pressuring Timothy to appoint them as an elder. Paul's saying, don't take part in that sin. This would actually explain verse 23. It's kind of an odd verse that gets thrown out. But understand what's been happening. These false teachers have been teaching in this church that if you abstain from marriage and you abstain from certain food and drink, that you'll be more holy, you'll be more spiritual. And it seems as though Timothy has started to be influenced by this because Paul says to him in verse 23, no longer drink only water. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Drinking wine in small amounts in the first century was standard medical practice of the day. Timothy was under tremendous pressure at this church, lots of issues, maybe was prone to digestive upset. And so Paul's telling him, drink a little wine, right? To take care of yourself with all that you're dealing with. Or taking part in the sins of others could also refer to the damage and the pain and the hurt that results when you put a leader in place who's not qualified. We've all seen that. We understand what happens. And so there's a lot of hurt and damage and pain that it can occur. And Paul says to Timothy, don't commission a new leader prematurely. Don't do it. And you can see why Timothy would want to. He had just lost elders who had shipwrecked their faith. The church has issues, has need. Timothy's going, I need elders. Paul says, be careful. Right? Resist the urge, Timothy, to overreact. Resist the urge to overreact and do something that's going to cause more problems than you already have. Right? Overreaction is a symptom of control. Overreaction is a symptom of control. Timothy saw problems in front of him, and the, the, the temptation was going to be to overreact and seize control. It's the same thing you and I face. When problems and issues come your way, there's a temptation to seize control and overreact. What's the solution to control and overreaction? Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, some sins are obvious, some are hidden, but both come before God in judgment. Verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Some good works are obvious, some are hidden. The point that Paul's making here is whether it's good works or sins, whether they're hidden or whether they're obvious, they're all known to God. And God handles them according to his wisdom and his grace and his judgment. This was to be comforting for Timothy. As he's assessing leaders, as he's assessing future elders, this is the comfort to say, hey, Timothy, you're going to make some mistakes in assessing. That's unavoidable. Ultimately, this isn't in your hands. It's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. The responsibility of assessing others 
for leadership. Happens in a church, happens in the marketplace, happens in your company, happens in the team you're on. You know, how, how do you assess others for leadership? When you realize that some of their sin and good works is going to be right there to see, and some of it's going to be hidden. Well, the key to assessing others is first being able to assess yourself. You can't assess others accurately until you assess yourself accurately. And these verses 24 and 25 bring a great deal of, I'll just call it terror and humility and comfort all at the same time. Because what it means is that as you assess yourself, there's gonna be sins that you see. They're the obvious sins that you know about in your life that you see, but there's also a whole myriad of sin that falls behind the perpetual blind spot that you never see in your life. What that means is that you are more sinful and wretched and wicked than you could ever imagine. So cheer up. You're more sinful than you could ever imagine because there's some sin you see and there's some you don't see. Martin Luther was a German priest and he was instrumental in the Reformation of the 1500s. He was really well known for, in his journaling, he would have these midnight dialogues with the devil that he recorded in regards to his sin uh, because part of his coming alive was starting to understand what Christ had actually done for him. In one of these midnightish dialogues with the devil, here's what he writes. When the devil casts up to us our sin and declares us worthy of death and hell, we must say, I confess that I am worthy of death and hell. What more do you have to say? Then you will be lost forever. Not in the least. For I know one who suffered for me and made satisfaction for my sins. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So long as he shall live, I shall live also. Amen to that. Therefore, treat the devil thus. Spit on him. That's good Luther language. Spit on him and say, have I sinned? Well, then I have sinned and I'm sorry, but I will not on that account despair. For Christ has borne and taken away all my sin. That's why I said, cheer up. You're more sinful and wretched than you could ever believe. Cheer up because Christ has taken it all away. Now, the other side is also true that you are more loved by God in Jesus Christ than you could ever imagine. Luther goes on in one of his dialogues and says this, mother love is stronger than the filth and scabbiness on a child. And so the love of God toward us is stronger than the dirt that clings to us. Accordingly, although we are sinners, we do not lose our filial or son or daughter relation on account of our filthiness, nor do we fall from grace on account of our sin. You say, what empowers transparency? That's it. Your sin has been taken away. Your sin has been taken away and paid for. So you don't have to hide and pretend like you don't have any. You can be transparent. Opens the door for accountability and support. What is important when it comes to leadership? 
respect, accountability, or transparency, but realize that both of those, respect and accountability, are only possible through relentless trust of Jesus Christ, his power and his grace. When you are trusting the person of Jesus Christ, then you will be the most respectful person. When you are trusting Jesus Christ, then you will be transparent. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your sin? Do you trust him with the sin of others? And do you trust him with the problem or the issue that you are facing? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the work of your son that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been taken away. That Jesus, you paid the full penalty for it. That all that's left for us is grace. And thank you for that gospel truth that empowers transparency. That we don't have to live in a culture of concealment. That we live in a culture of transparency and accountability. And that, Father, when we are actively and dynamically trusting your Son, that we are the most respectful of people and the most transparent of people. Would you produce that culture here at Christ Church East with all the leaders in the various ways that people are leading, with all of those that are leading in the marketplace, maybe leading in the government, in the military, Oh, Father, would you produce a culture of leadership that swims in respect and accountability and ultimately trust of your son, Jesus, who is the leader and the king of your church. We pray this all in his name. Amen.